This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. I think we'll get started. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for sticking around this afternoon. Welcome to Stanford's Welcome to Stanford's second annual career conference. I'm Kristen Connor, one of the career counselors at the Career Development Center. Today we're going to be hearing about some fantastic information regarding careers in philanthropy. Your moderator will be Malka Kopel, who is the managing director on the Stanford Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society, and so she has a great background in philanthropy as well. So you're welcome to ask her questions as we get along throughout the day. Malka, I'll leave it to you now for the rest of the panel. Okay. Let me introduce our panelists in order, starting with Stuart Gordon, who is the Director of Community Affairs at the Levi Strauss Foundation. Britt Earhart, who is... Megan Rice. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm looking at the wrong word. Um, Megan Ricecamp, who is the International Program Manager uh, for Strategic Partnerships at Cisco Systems. Britt Earhart, who is the Grants Analyst for the Firelight Foundation. Cole Wilbur, who is a trustee with the David and Lucille Packard Foundation. And Camilla Nelson, who is the communications manager for HP Corporate Philanthropy. And I'm going to start by asking each of them, we'll just go down the line, to introduce yourself uh, by describing what you currently do, your current position in philanthropy, its responsibilities, challenges, and rewards. Okay. <laughs> I'll get to some of that, I, I hope. Uh, again, my name is Stuart. I graduated in 1984 with a degree in human biology, and my career is one of moving between the private and the not-for-profit sector. Um, when I left Stanford, I went to work for the headquarters of Citibank in New York. Um, as I was mentioned, I work at Levi's now, where I've been for the last five years. And in between, I worked for the Ford Foundation for a couple of years in New York and for the MacArthur Foundation for 11 years in Chicago, John D., Catherine T., MacArthur. And today, I split my role uh, between the corporate side, where I have a corporate function, and the foundation, which is a completely separate organization. But from the public's view, they all just see it as Levi's. And we focus on three issues. We don't really align our grant making or our corporate giving to the nature of our business. We're not trying to use grant making to build our business or to sell more jeans. Um, we focus on complex social issues in the world, and we just decided that uh, poverty is something that is of great concern to the company around the world, and we are a global company. We, we make our product. Our product comes in from 65 different places in the world, countries, and we sell it in 110. It's the world's biggest clothing brand, most uh, pervasive. And so what I do is focus on three issues, HIV AIDS, economic development, and workers' rights. And my day-to-day -day is basically receiving proposals, making decisions uh, about what we're going to support and, and what we're going to turn down. And, and a large part of my day is saying no, um, to be quite honest, because most of what comes in gets turned down. Um, it's a lot of fun. I use the information that I studied here, plus a lot of other things along the way. But that, in a nutshell, is what I do. I mean, all the corporate giving, foundation giving, employee community involvement programs in the Americas, from Canada through Megan? My name is Megan Ricecamp, and I work for Cisco Systems. I'm an international program manager in what we call our corporate affairs department, um, but it's mixed in. We have a Cisco foundation. We have um, a variety of different programs. 
Um, to give you a bit of my background, I graduated in 2002 from Stanford, um, and I had got my bachelor's in international relations in Spanish, and I did a certificate program in Latin American studies. And just sort of to talk about my job, I have to say it this way, but I, I really want to focus on, just from my student experience and alumni experience, sort of to tell you what it's like working in this job. I'm not going to put my corporate hat on and so start talking as if I'm at Cisco, um, because I think it may be more useful to talk more um, about my experiences at Cisco. And uh, so I started at Cisco. I, I got a job right after I graduated. And um, it was through an email that was passed around uh, at my dorm from someone who was interning there and said there's a job opening. And it fit perfectly because at Stanford, I was really interested in international development and had done my studies in the areas of technology, um, education, and international development. And so it really fit nicely. I'd done my thesis around that. So I could say um, in my interview, look at all this stuff I've done at Stanford that um, supports that I'm passionate about this area. Um, so I got a job there, and I started in a group that was called International Strategies and Partnerships at the time. And so my first job was really um, working with these international organizations, branches of the United Nations, um, USAID, and other um, big international development organizations to bring this educational program that we have to the world's least developed countries and developing countries. And, um, and that was really interesting. I did that for about two and a half years, and then I wanted to get sort of, and I was really focused on Africa at that time, but I didn't really have any contact with the people that we were impacting, so then I uh, took a, a role in international operations, where I was actually responsible for Africa for, for about a year and a half. And then I sort of argued to Cisco that we need people actually in Africa doing the role that I was doing. So I returned af after we actually got those people in Africa to do that, that job. Um, I returned to a group which is now called um, Strategic Partnerships. And so once again, I'm doing more of the, the partnership management angle, but I'm doing it from um, a, in a different region now. I'm working in Latin America. Um, primarily, uh, still a lot of Africa as well. Um, so in terms of just daily, uh, just the, the challenges and the, the highlights, I would say um, it's really exciting work and you get to see the results um, you know, of what you're doing and it's having impact and that's really exciting. For me, what motivates me is talking to the instructors we have in the field and the students that have gone through this program because it's it's talking to them that you understand that how important it is to them to have the backing of a big global company behind them and that they get to participate in this program and they take what you give them and they multiply it um, which is really exciting i think the challenges of the job are really um, you know it's not as glamorous as it seems there's, you know, I still get the corporate politics. Um, most of my time is spent sitting in a cubicle. Um, and I work with a primarily virtual team, 
which means that it's not a lot of in-person contact and it's a lot of really early morning calls, um, you know, or really late nights. And it was really bad when I first started because I was managing projects in both Asia and Africa. So I'd wake up at, you know, 6 in the morning, take phone calls, and then be on phone calls until 10 p.m. at night. Um, so those are the not-so-glamorous sides of the, the um, work, but in all, you know, I think when I've actually gone and worked with the projects in person, it, it's totally worth it to me. It's really exciting. Sure. So my name is Britt Earhart. Um, I graduated from Stanford in 2004 um, with a degree in psychology and a minor in African studies. Um, and I work now for an organization called the Firelight Foundation. Firelight is located down in Santa Cruz, California. Um, we're a small private foundation, which means private means that the uh, uh, the decision-making board of the organization is not representative of the public. It's controlled by a family. Um, we're a pretty small foundation, I think, particularly compared to the other foundations that are represented up here. Um, endowments about. 12 million or so, and we do about $2 million of grant making a year. Um, Firelight supports about 250 community-based organizations in southern and eastern Africa. Um, and these organizations are all serving vulnerable children and their families and their communities. Uh, the focus is particularly children made vulnerable by HIV AIDS. Uh, my role at Firelight, I'm a grants analyst, which kind of means that I'm our resident database geek. <laughs> I'm, I'm really interested in the ways that uh, we can use technology to um, better help our partners document and share their successes, as well as the way that Firelight can use technology to uh, achieve our mission of having responsive and respectful partnerships with these organizations. As you can imagine, when you have that many partners, it takes uh, some pretty good technology to, to make sure that um, everything's happening the way it needs to be. Um, let's see, I guess uh, responsibilities, um, in addition to sort of the grants analyst responsibilities, I also um, work to support a portfolio of partners in Kenya and Zambia. We have about 40 partners in those two countries together. Um, challenges and rewards. Um, I, I think I get a lot of fulfillment from my job. You know, I, I really like every day that I get to go to work. I Other things that you folks might be excited about, I get to travel internationally. Um, and I, I often have people ask me, um, you know, isn't working with AIDS in Africa so dispiriting? How, how do you manage to keep going back to it? But I find that my job is really about solutions, that I get to work with some of the most hopeful and optimistic people I've ever met. These are people who uh, are identifying issues in their communities and working to resolve them. So in, in some ways, I feel like um, I'm lucky to get to enable those kinds of solutions. So I'm going to stop there. Thanks, Cole. I'm Cole Wilber. I'm a trustee and past president of the David Lucille Packard Foundation. David Packard was one of the co-founders of Lit Packard, where we all works and where Hawker <laughs> used to work at Hewitt Foundation. So here up there. The, uh, the Packard Foundation is uh, 
was a statement. I, I, I ran it as the president for 23 years, and then retired at the end of the last century, uh, and in 99 became the trustee. Uh, I continue to be active with the foundation, uh, both as a trustee and then trying to work on a number of the programs. So, um, the foundation started small and, and grew because of the fact it was funded. And it gets involved in programs involved in environmental issues. Um, the environment consists of fishery issues because the world's fishing fleets are more effective at catching fish than the fish are reproducing in the world. And so we do we work on that. And climate um, issues because we're, <clears throat> the United States is still number one in throwing things up into the atmosphere. China's coming in second. And, uh, Brazil is one of the third or fourth, India is in the so we're working in the uh, United States, China, and um, Brazil. We work also on coastal issues and land issues from Alaska through British Columbia down to Baja, California. We have a family planning population program that works in a number of developing countries in Ethiopia, Nigeria, in Pakistan and India, and in the Philippines. Uh, we have um, a children's program that uh, works here mostly in California, although it does occasional international parts, which um, deals with uh, issues concerning getting all children to have insurance, uh, getting children to have start and go to preschool, and then have a good after school. Uh, Packard Foundation has uh, this year will make grants of around $300 million. Uh, and so with the, the responsibility and so on, uh, partly as a trustee, but more as when I was a CEO, is really trying to make sure that that money makes a difference. I mean, you really change something. It's, it's pretty easy to make C-plus grants where things continue just as the way they were before, but to really try and change things, which is what we're basically all, all here uh, trying to do, and make make the life a little different, uh, is, uh, is basically our responsibility. And it, it's also, there was some, we had a little discussion about Oprah Winfrey's school and, to trying to change, and apparently you're doing a wonderful job with that school, but taking it to scale throughout the country is another story. And so part of, I think, what, what we're all looking at is taking whatever programs we're funding and, and seeing how, how can we take this to, to scale. It's like you don't want to have a program that's so expensive that you, that you can only one, you know, you've only helped one child or 10, ten children or something. You want to be able to, to run it out where you can help other people on a much broader basis. But it depends on how much money you've got and what, what your strategy is. And that but that's pretty much as, as a trustee. I also get invited to go and talk other places and uh, try and uh, pretend that I know something. Thank you, Cole. Kim? Thank you so much. It's amazing. <laughs> I'm running around the office telling people, I'm going to be on our panel. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, I'm Camilla Nelson. I'm actually the communications manager for HP Philanthropy. It's a new role that um, just became a full-time role within our department within the last six months. So prior to that, I spent several years, um, almost eight years, as a program manager. So I did uh, mostly do grant thinking. So HP, um, 150,000 employees, we're in 138 countries, uh, $90 billion company. We give away um, somewhere between 45 and $60 million a year, and that's largely in HP products, uh, computers, printers, cameras, et cetera. Um, 
I, um, I guess on a day-to-day -day basis now, um, am following what all of our program managers are doing. We're structured in such a way that we have regional leads, uh, one who leads our work in our Asia-Pacific region, uh, one who leads our work, a couple of people who lead our work in our Europe, Middle East, and African region, and then somebody else who manages uh, Canada and Latin America and who has his managed out of the corporate office. And um, the way we uh, operate is, is very um, within the corporate structure with input from just about everybody. Um, we take a look at our strategy each year in terms of areas of focus. And um, unlike Stuart, we do um, make a very strong attempt to connect our giving to our business competencies and business priorities. Um, we call it strategic philanthropy. So our current areas of focus are education, as always has been, and um, is likely to continue um, in the long run. Uh, the second is environment. Um, not sure how familiar most of are in the room, but uh, from the perspective of the technology company, environment went from somewhere down here in terms of level of importance to almost off the scales. So when, uh, when you have a billboard right outside the corporate office with old monitors and CPUs and a landfill in China, it's not a pretty picture. So uh, environment has definitely risen on the scale of importance for HP, so that is one area uh, where our philanthropic resources are being directed now and much more in the future. And the third is, um, is economic development. And in the area of economic development, our focus is largely on microenterprise development. So we invest in nonprofit organizations that help people in underserved communities start and grow their businesses, um, specifically uh, using technology, tools, and software for those purposes. So we've, we've gotten into areas where People had had no access to technology and are still learning how to turn it on. Um, so from point A to using tools like QuickBooks to manage their business finances. So it's been a wonderful um, journey. And again, like Stuart said, say no a whole lot more than you say yes. And I've done my share of actually presentations teaching people how to say no, um, respectfully, and somebody once told me, by the time she's done telling you no, you'll think she maybe said yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's probably the biggest challenge. Thank you. Thank you all. All right, so for the next round of questions, uh, I, I'm going to ask you all to consider, um, for those who are interested in entering the field of philanthropy, what skills and experience do you consider essential for entering the field? And also, what job search advice would you give? Start with Stuart again. Um, job search advice, and I'm going to tell just a quick story. I, I was at Citibank in New York, and nice title, big organization, big impressive organization, good salary. Um, but what I found is I enjoyed my volunteer work on Thursday nights in East Harlem more and I was 
enjoying my day job. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could do more of that and less of this? And someone uh, said, well, why don't you try to find a job that really satisfies more of your, your, your passion? And I, I would say, if you are passionate about philanthropy, then, then pursue it. In that same conversation, a um, person challenged me. It was a Stanford person who graduated a few years before, who I thought had the perfect job with a foundation based in New York. I said, if I could just only do what you do, I'd be so happy. And um, anyway, she challenged me. She said, what are the elements to you of a perfect job? Your ideal perfect. And name them. And uh, I did at the time. It's the first time I've ever kind of said them out loud to anyone. I said, uh, a job where I used information that I studied in school. A job working for an organization that had values consistent to my own. Um, where I got to travel, and ideally internationally. A job that paid me a decent salary because I had Stanford to pay back. <laughs> and um, a job where I could work with people around me I would learn from. I, I'd had an experience where I thought I was actually smarter than the boss, and that's not a good experience. So I wanted someone who really could teach me something. And the bottom line of the advice was to go out and, and find that job. And so um, the question is what, it, what skills do you need, but what you need to know what, what motivates you. And if, it, if it's philanthropy, that's great, but if it's not, um, go find that thing. If you're going to work in philanthropy, a couple of things, especially for recent grads. People come to me all the time and say, oh, I would love to do what you do. Um, work in not-for-profit organizations, work in the community, work internationally. I say, really, which of those things have you ever done before? Um, starting with uh, work with a not-for-profit not organization. Well, I never have. So to demonstrate your interest, your true commitment, it would be nice if you had some experience. Uh, a summer internship, volunteer experience, something beyond I'm interested. Because quite truthfully, unless you can show me something, um, conversation's probably not going to get very far. If you can, second, if you can bring, if you know something that other people in the office don't know, or you know a little bit more of something, and it can be a skill or something about a subject, you're more likely to distinguish yourself. I mean, if you're a whiz, um, with with databases or something, or you're you know a region of the world where the the, uh, the foundation is active and, and speak that language, then you're likely you know you add value. Third is passion. Um, it's hard sometimes to see the results of this work because a you're not doing the work, you're just facilitating it. You're you're making a grant to help the group do the work. So you've got to be passionate. I'm passionate about the work, the area, and, and the subject that's being addressed. And then, just practically speaking, you've got to be a good writer. You've got to be able to communicate your ideas to an audience, be it the CEO, like Cole, and say, here's why I'm recommending this grant, which he's never seen. He's not read the proposal, but he's going to read your summary. And it's got to be convincing. It's got to be persuasive. And if you work internationally, I think it's great to have language skills. And the more the better, but uh, we live in a world today where organizations like ours are, are global, and um, it's just not enough to speak English. And, I, I, you know, going back to one of the challenges, I, I'm, I have worked in the private foundation sector, I'm getting off the question a little bit, but Cam, you said something that was interesting to me, comparing what I did at Ford and MacArthur to what I do at Levi's. One of the challenges is how to say no, so communicating in a very diplomatic way is important because when I worked at Ford and MacArthur, I would get these letters and we would tell them no, or they would call me up and we would say no. But at Levi's, I get the same letters, 
more or less. And I'm going to say no to most of them, but I still want them to buy our product. And uh, at the end of the day, a lot of people will say, oh, I grew up wearing your, uh, your jeans, and I've had this long you know, relationship with your company, so of course you should fund it. Um, it's a little bit off the subject, but it goes back to um, one of the differences between a private foundation where no is no, a corporate foundation where no, no is no, but please keep uh, shopping. <laughs> I think those are some of the skills I think that would make you successful in this job. Thanks, Stuart. Um, I would say pretty much everything that Stuart just said. Um, I think I, I had the opportunity, um, just one of my first jobs at Cisco was recruiting other people for Cisco for our group. So I, I really got to hear sort of the whole philosophy, or my bosses at philosophy at that time on, on who to hire. And uh, she told me why she hired me. Is she said, I wore a suit to the interview and I had volunteer experience on my resume. Because really, um, pretty much everyone recently graduating from school will have a similar level of work experience. You've done a couple internships, etc. So there's not a whole lot to differentiate you unless it's strong volunteer experience. Or the other thing I did that differentiated me is. Um, during school, I had done my senior honors thesis in an area that was very much, I, I didn't plan it this way, but I wish I had thought about it more um, while I was in school, because it was an area that really interested me, um, I was very passionate about, and um, I wrote this whole year-long research paper on, um, and it gave me something to really talk about in my interview that yes I know I'm really passionate about it I've demonstrated interest and um, and this is what I want to do with my career so um, that was a huge advantage so I would encourage you to think back about any papers you've done or classes you've taken that demonstrate interest in whatever uh, job you're applying for and talk about those put them on your resume under your education section um, because it's really a, a distinguishing point um, when you're applying for a job. Um, the other thing that I would I would have to mention is um, I've been at Cisco for four and a half years, directly out of college, and I've, right now I'm having a lot of um, career conversations with um, some of the upper management at Cisco about, okay, where do I go now? And um, frankly, they're all telling me that I need to go out of philanthropy and I need to get business experience. Um, and so I think that's an odd place I find myself because I'm so passionate about what I do every day, but what I really need and the experience they're telling me to get is um, product management, marketing, um, sales. They keep pressing sales and, and um, one person I was talking to, she said, I got pushed into a sales job. I didn't want to do it. It's the last thing I wanted to do. Um, and then two months into the job, I was looking at short-term benefits and I was acting just like a salesperson and you get to understand how the rest of the company functions by doing all these different roles. So, um, so personally, I'm finding myself in a place where I'm looking to acquire those business skills. So I would also say that if you're looking to get into this field, it's really not the end of the world if you can't find something in this field. Because what you can do is demonstrate 
um, your abilities in a variety of different areas. And you know, in within <coughs> Cisco philanthropy, we're hiring um, people in marketing or people in who have product uh, management experience. We're um, hiring just a, we're hiring engineers. We're hiring a whole lot of different people, and they mostly come in from within Cisco. There's really very few people who get jobs in our group from outside of Cisco. And so what, I, what I've noticed and what I say to people is, okay, let's say you're at Cisco and you're interested in this area. There's a lot of things that we do at Cisco for our own employees um, in areas of philanthropy, volunteer efforts, um, places where you can get to know people within the philanthropy department. And if you've demonstrated that you can lead a volunteer effort or you can be on um, a board, we have these um, boards made up of employees that help decide where the grants go, um, that is something that you can then demonstrate your interest and later apply for a job within that same company. So um, I guess the business experience is something that um, I didn't quite expect, but it's really critical, I think, at least at Cisco it is, um, to progressing further um, in your career in that group. Um, I also think for my particular role, we always look for international experience. So that means <coughs> a volunteer experience abroad or um, you know, an exchange program and um, just making sure you have a flavor of different um, organizations or experiences. Okay. You know, I think I'm going to echo uh, a thought that Megan had expressed. Um, one thing that's continually striking to me about philanthropy is that there's no one path by which people enter it. Um, for example, if you think about medical school, you take the pre-med classes, go to medical school, you get your internship, and then your residency, and then you're a doctor. There's a clear path that you know most people who are going to become doctors follow in order to achieve that career goal. But in philanthropy, people come into it from all sorts of um, all sorts of backgrounds. Um, and at least for me, I'm in our grant making program, which means that I'm reading proposals and uh, helping the team make recommendations about what to fund and then sort of following up as those grants progress. But there are other roles in foundations as well. Um, we have some finance folks who do some of our accounting. We have admin and human resource people. We have communications and development folks, people who write our annual reports and publications, um, and folks who do the fundraising. Um, so there's a, a wide range of roles in philanthropy and a wide range of um, backgrounds that can help you get a job in evaluation. Um, I think specific skills that uh, the foundation world looks for, I would say education. There are about eight or ten of us in our grant making program, and I am the only one without uh, two or more degrees. So um, I, I don't think it's required to get a job in a foundation, but it, it certainly doesn't hurt. Um, you know, a master's or perhaps even a PhD. Um, I would also say um, that I'd echo Stuart's comments about communication skills, both written and oral communication skills. And not just academic writing, where you're trying to figure out how you can fill out those 20 pages, but the kind of writing <laughs> where, where you're going to take those 20 pages and put it in one page. 
and make it uh, so that you have the salient points and it's concise and interesting to read. Um, it requires a level of analysis. Um, you know, at, at every level of um, screening applications and proposals, we're triaging as a team, and we have to be able to, in you know, 15 seconds of looking at a one-page piece of paper, decide whether um, you know this is going to match up with the foundation's priorities or not. In our last screening cycle, we got something like 700 initial letters of inquiry, and you you have to be able to read through those quickly and make quick decisions. Um, and I, I think I'd also echo the comments about foreign language skills. Uh, everyone on our program team speaks at least one other language fluently besides English. Um, and I guess uh, I would finally say um, judgment. I think working in philanthropy often involves power relations and difficult communication situations and knowing what to communicate and how is really important. I think just, just some very specific things. I think maybe the education that you mentioned is very important, but I think within that, knowing something about accounting, I mean, you have to be able to look at somebody's financial statement and determine whether they, you know, whether the organization is doing very well. Marketing skills are, are very helpful. If you can convince people of things, uh, whether they're, whoever they are, I think that's helpful. Uh, communications, as been mentioned, is extremely important. Uh, not just writing, which is very important, but also speaking and presenting, being able to, to help people. And the volunteers, uh, with not volunteering with nonprofit, was also very good. The sort of personal things that you need, uh, you need to be able to listen and learn. There's a little bit of a tendency, if you've got the money and somebody else doesn't, to become very wise. And uh, <laughs> the, uh, I think what happens is you, you need to be able to, to really learn from other people, even if you think you know the answer, because sometimes it turns out you don't know all the answers you think. You need to really have respect for people. Uh, you need to have some values, and when I mean values, I mean values like integrity, respect, responsibility, um, compassion, respect for values like that. And then I think, it, as far as a job search is concerned, very, one very specific thing is the Northern California Grant Makers, which is about 150 organizations in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, lists jobs. So if you're looking for a job, so you feel like that's a good place. As you go around and meet people, even if they don't have a job, and one thing I would recommend that not many people do, but I would certainly, is that after you've met somebody and they've given you some ideas or whatever they've been, let them know every so often, put them on an email list, or let them know every so often where you are. Because what happens is, at least for me, is I see somebody about once a week that comes in looking for a job, and so by six weeks out, I, I'm not thinking about them at that time. It doesn't mean they're not good people. And if every so often they send me an email and just say, I'm still looking and this is what I've done and this is where I am, then they bring themselves to the top of the file. So if you meet good people and try and do that, anybody that you meet, ask them two things. One, obviously, if they have a know about a job, but secondly, who else you should talk with. And it's building these relationships around. Sometimes you find positions and jobs where you don't think they are. They might be in a field that you don't, you don't know much about. And so uh, keep people up to date. Obviously, I agree with what everyone has said. Um, I guess the only other thing that I would add is, is yes, the networking piece I find is very, very important. If you could start doing some things within the philanthropy circle that are open to the public, 
um, and do a lot of meet and greet, earn passing, and collecting. Um, that's always uh, so many jobs are, are um, snatched up by virtue of the fact that somebody was in within somebody else's network, like the email that you got. Um, the only other thing that I would add is everybody's encouraged volunteerism. You'd be surprised at how many nonprofit um, organizations are looking for young people to be on the board. Um, nonprofits generally have um, a matrix that they complete to identify skills and areas of representation that they'd like to see to essentially ensure that they're serving their constituents in an appropriate way. And um, given the background that you all acquired here at Stanford, um, I'm sure most of you would be a welcome addition to a number of uh, nonprofit boards here in the Bay Area. And that's part of the reason that I, I ended up where I did and learned so much about the nonprofit sector. I'm serving on my 14th board now. But um, the only other thing unusual about my story, and, and I want to echo what Kimberly said previously, was it's fine to go into another field and then work your way in here. I actually am a recovering lawyer. <laughs> Practiced as a state government lawyer in Minnesota for about 10 years, and um, two years of that practice actually regulated nonprofit organizations. So I not only had the, the volunteering and the board service, but actually had the, the legal background and the ins and outs of the nonprofit sector. Thank you all. I, I had saved up a high concept question, which I might ask at the end, but I, I think we have so many great resources at the, on the panel, I'd like to get into the Q&A now. And uh, what, what, what I'll just take questions from the audience, and then I'll just ask if anybody wants to respond, and if more than one, you can, you can chip in. So when we start. This one's specifically for Camila, but also in general for, for corporate philanthropy. Um, I was wondering if with the environmental issues that you're addressing through the foundation, do you also have opportunities to change practices within the corporation that prevent the environmental problems from happening in the first place? Yeah, great question. And actually, that too went way up uh, on the rise. We actually have... Um, I can't quote the specific goal, but um, an identifiable goal for the company for reduction in uh, gas emissions. We had we started off in 2003, I believe, with a goal of recycling 10 billion pounds um, by 20 of, of HP products by 2010, and we are actually already um, ahead of our target for that goal. Um, within the company, we just went through um, a whole new recycling initiative that has essentially every queue, every desk, has its own recycling bin for every, that whole everything. So there's there's a substantial amount of work going on internally, and we're doing a lot related to starting to do a lot more related to climate change. In fact, we provided. A, huge amount of funding to support um, the production of Inconvenient Truth. So we've Actually, I'd like to hear Stuart answer the same question because you said poverty and uh, workers' rights. 
Right. Uh, specifically on environmental issues? Actually, for pop, well, you said your focus area is poverty and mm -hmm. workers' rights, and that Levi's is probably having genes created all over the world. So. Your larger question is, are we able to take some of the issues that we, we work on through our grant making and bring them in-house? And the answer is yes. Um, uh, we're not, I do as we say, not as we do. I mean, we want to lead by example. Um, so, for example, when we talk about workers' rights, Levi's was the first company, apparel company in the world, to have a code of conduct. We used to own and operate every facility where our, our clothing was made, and that model is not really um, uh, effective, financially effective. So we go through a contract system now, and people say, well, that's great, because you know, you don't have to, you're not responsible anymore, because you don't own the factory. And the U.S. was the first company that said, regardless of where it's made and who owns the factory, there will be certain standards that that factory maintains that we will insist on, or they won't get our business. And others in the apparel sector said, you know, that's crazy, and that's not profitable. And why would you even care? Because it's offshore, and you don't have to abide by American laws when you're in these other places. And going back to the value statement, the, it's a family-owned company. And the family decided, we just want to be comfortable with everything that has our name on it. We would be comfortable knowing and walking through the plant and seeing the conditions in which it was made. So we, we bring the same things um, internally through the business that we're concerned about for our philanthropy. And specifically, even though we don't have an environment program, um, environmental issues are uh, very significant today. And we just came out with our echo gene, and it gets back to how the cotton is grown. Is it grown in a sustainable way? And what are the materials and other um, uh, elements of the gene? And so if you go into a Levi's store today, you can buy our echo gene, which has things like a coconut shell for rivets instead of copper, uh, completely sustainable. But yes, you, you, you need to walk the talk if you're, it's not just enough to give money toward an issue, you also have to live um, in a way that's consistent with, with what you're doing philanthropically or charitably. Yes. For all those times that you said no, I'm sure for the most part you mm -hmm. want to say yes. Um, for those projects that you find very appealing and have a lot of potential, but you think that maybe there might be a lack of capacity in order to fulfill their project missions, how much or how little of a role will the foundation play in helping build the capacity in order for that application to be successful? Wants to start? Cool. At Packard Foundation, for instance, we have what we call organizational effectiveness. We used to call it management assistance, but then people said, well, they went to their board and <laughs> for management assistance to sound like they're weak, so we changed the name. Uh, organizational effectiveness. Uh, but it basically is just that. To, those are probably the best grants we make uh, to try and help an organization change, find a new CEO or the ones retiring, improve their board, come up with a strategic plan, become technologically advanced, you know, get them to use HP products, um, <laughs> buy good clothing, whatever. <laughs> get Cisco routers. And, and <laughs> in, in other words, it's, uh, it, it's trying, to, you know, trying to really help them. And those are the best things that we do. Uh, now, some organizations are, are weak, and they, you, know, you, you have to say no because they just aren't willing to do that. In other words, they want to know how to raise money, but they don't have a good strategy, or they don't have a good board. And saying no is, a, is an interesting thing. Um, you, you write a lot about it, and there's a tendency to try and, and say, why not? Okay? And that can be very helpful sometimes, but you can't really write somebody and say, well, you are not going to fund you because your executive director is incompetent. 
Um, it's a, you know, unless you have a big liability policy or something. <laughs> uh, so you, you have to be a little bit careful what you say, but it, a lot of times you can say, uh, you know, we can't fund you, but there, you might want to try some other foundations or something. If it's a good product program, but you're just, it's not in your area. So saying no is, is more than just an automatic no. Although, um, you know, they, they get to be reasonably automatic just because uh, you get so many of them. And so you put the, the trick is to try and, and get people to, um, you know, get to stay your own staff to try and be a little bit more um, imaginative and, and to maybe help them and give some ideas if they are worth helping. Some groups are just, um, you know, either politically or something, you just completely disagree with them so you don't, you don't really you don't necessarily wish them well. Uh, you don't want to say it. But uh, the, uh, there's not too many of them. But, uh, Anybody else? I can add on to that as well. Um, Firelight also does some administrative and technical assistance grant making. Um, it's an in, sort of an increasing part of our portfolio. Um, we're really more of a response-based grant maker, and that is um, we want to support African solutions to African problems. So we ourselves generally don't provide technical assistance with, for example, leadership transition or something of that sort. Um, instead, we're really interested in providing the resources and the links to maybe local NGO networks or a local um, technical assistance provider, someone who knows the context and can help that organization with whatever its issue is. Um, it's, it's, it would be tough to do that from 10,000 miles away. I'll, I'll just chime in a little bit as well. Um, the programs I work on are a little bit different because we're not necessarily evaluating um, grant proposals that come in, but for example, um, most of the programs that we have provide some element of capacity building for the organizations we work with. We just um, we just started an initiative with the Grameen Bank, for example, um, to bring our our academy program, our networking academy program, which is an IT curriculum, to IT entrepreneurs in developing countries and the Grameen Bank will give them a loan to start their business. We will provide them with the technology education that they need to support ongoing professional development um, and also entrepreneurial training to help them get their business started. So it takes, for us, um, it, we really rely on partnering a lot for that um, capacity building and also helping us decide who to partner with. Um, so um, what I do is work a lot with UNDP and USAID. It wasn't Cisco who decided where we're going to put our academies. It's these organizations who have international development experience um, who said, we think you should go there. Um, we'll work with you on this program because we didn't even have offices in Africa at the time. So it really, um, it's, it's through partnering that we've been able to support the organizations that we donate this curriculum to. Um, in social entrepreneurship, they often talk about the double bottom line to measure the outcomes of their programs and initiatives. So in philanthropy, you're in the grant making spectrum and then down the pipeline, you probably don't get to see the result firsthand like one of the panelists were talking about. You don't actually get to work on the projects that you fund. So how do you measure the success, evaluate the um, outcomes of the programs that you fund? 
you just raised the biggest question <laughs> facing the philanthropic sector now. Um, and I guess if I were to give two examples, one is, and we're being asked to figure this out. Um, so we're seeing it in a variety of ways, and now we're starting to work with partners like uh, KPMG and London Benchmarking Group to help us define those metrics and measurement processes. But we say things like we know that our grants of technology are having a positive Im impact within the classrooms where they are because teachers are actually teaching differently. They're doing less lecturing and more facilitating. There's more interactive engagement. And it's largely because what, what we grant now to schools, colleges, and universities are tablet PCs. And so things can be digitally projected up on a wall or a screen, but in addition to pulling out even a textbook or a curriculum on the tablet, the teacher can write, can highlight, and then at some point um, there's actually a software whereby the students can also make notations that go up on the screen at the same time. So the teacher can be having private conversations and little private chat sections. I mean, it's really transforming in those classrooms the way learning takes place. But one of the things that we say is that it's improving student achievement. And that would literally mean we'd have to track for each student from a certain grade at the start to a certain grade at the finish and be able to say specifically it was due to the new technology in the classroom. And we just, we, that's just not, <laughs> that's just not going to happen. So it is, it is challenging, but at a certain level um, we can report some kinds of numbers and some level of success, but to be able to really um, honestly report um, a true increase in student achievement, we, it's, it's a hard statement to make. So it is, it's very challenging. Cool. Let me give you an example, two examples of one easy, one very difficult. If, if you wanted to increase the number of people who are getting vaccinations when they're babies, in Santa Clara County, there's, let's say, 92% people get it and you want to get it up to 96%, you could send vans out to low-income areas and nurses and get, you know, pay a little bit to women living in those areas to bring their friends around. And you, could, and you know that every vaccination is good and that one more vaccination is better than one less and two more is better than two less. But let's say you're funding poetry or music. Is one more poem better than one less or one more music better than, you know, a piece of music? I mean, so, uh, you, some things are very hard to evaluate and some things are very easy. It's easy to count how many people were got served, how many people are doing this. You can count in our family planning program in developing countries how many children are people having and having fewer. How many people are using contraceptives are they having fewer. You can count in, in some environmental. How many fish are there? Uh, how many people are using sustainable fisheries? But when you get to, I mean, one of our programs is to try and get, uh, let's try and get uh, all the kids covered by insurance uh, in the state. Well, the governor just come out to that, and so we can say, hey, you know, success. Well, how much of that was us, you know, or how much was that just his own idea or some, his wife's idea or something like that? Um, you know, probably a lot. And so it's really hard. You can take a lot of credit, or if things go badly, you can blame yourself a lot when maybe you did very well. It just wasn't enough for somebody else was working. So it, it is, it's very necessary to evaluate but it's hard to know exactly, because it's not a dollar figure. <coughs> it's so much easier if 
if this is your profit and this is you know what your what you what you, your sales and your profit is it's a pretty straightforward figure. But in doing things that are trying where you're trying to be quality of life, for instance, I mean, are these kids really better off? Um, this many kids went to preschool, and you can make some che checks and say that these kids are doing better. Um, you know, in general, kids do better if they go to preschool. But it's hard to know. You know, at 65, are they better off than they were? Thank you. Um. I think I would echo Cole's comments about sort of the difficulty of sometimes evaluating or seeing that impact. I think a lot of what we do is um, negotiate with donors about the time frame for showing that success. Um, sometimes we'll get donations in January and we make an award to a group in April. But the group is new, they don't have a bank account set up yet, English is their third language, they're a little confused by our contract forms. The money doesn't go out until July or August. This is common. And you know, the grant making team feels totally fine about it. But the donor is expecting a report in January of the following year. And they want to well, they want to see that, you know, the psychosocial status of the fifty children that this grant was <laughs> helping, you know, has dramatically improved in the you know, six months that the group has has had that money. And I think a lot of what we do is sort of negotiate about those timelines. Because I, I think our team feels very confident about the long-term positive impact of the work that Firelight does. Uh, but it's not always, you're not always able to show the kind of quantitative metrics that people want in the short time frame that's available. I think one other thing that we do is we, um, we work to help the groups that we fund recognize alternative sources of data for success. These are often very small groups of volunteers, and they might not have the manpower to go out and gather the extensive quantitative data. But if perhaps at the end of the program they can gather you know, verbal histories from 10 of the 20 grandmothers um, who are caring for orphans in their homes. And these grandmothers can tell their story about how this grant is empowering their family and making them more food secure, that that sort of qualitative data can also show impact of success. Let me just tell you one quick more story. In, in 1997, an organization started up, a number of entrepreneurs started a job training program. And virtually everybody they trained in 97, 98, 99, and 00 got jobs. And almost nobody that they trained got jobs in 01 and 02 and 03. Now, did the job training change? No, the job training was the same. But there were a lot of people out of jobs in 01 and 02 and 03. So, I mean, when you're evaluating things, you know, all the other factors, in this case, the general economics of the territory, uh, come into the job training, or the, probably the job training was slightly better in 01, just because people had, had more, the teachers had, had more factors and so on. But it wasn't, uh, you know, so you have to look at all the external factors. Yes. Um, some of you have mentioned certain focus areas for the giving of your a company or foundation. So I was just wondering, um, what impact does each of you feel that you've had on, I guess, deciding those focus areas? Or how is that decided? Like what, you know, priorities you want to make for, for your giving? first um, again like I was saying previously is our giving actually is tied to business objectives and business goals and um, that's been the case for the last several years 
and I'll have to tell you, Mike, our, our VP makes this wonderful statement. When she came into the role in 2000, she recognized that many of the grants that we made were in the $5,000 range on the local level. They were in the areas of education, environment, health and human services, arts and culture, civic. And she basically said, and somebody else said it differently a, a few nights ago, and I'll, I'll repeat that way too, but she basically said, we're doing a lot of spraying and praying. <laughs> you know, just giving stuff to everybody everywhere and just praying that something happens. And um, she was the one who actually spearheaded us getting more strategic, um, more value, higher value uh, grants out the door and then doing some measuring and some following up. And so um, within that same time frame, the term strategic philanthropy started becoming a whole lot more popular. Our old CEO used to call it enlightened self-interest. Um, but what I do is I tell people the education focus is largely um, grew out of the lack of um, people from underrepresented communities in the IT industry, in engineering. And so a lot of our focus uh, around education is in the engineering, math and science space, math and science being the, sort of the pipeline to the field. The environment space uh, giving became a focus when it became a priority for the company. So now one of our major partnerships is with World Wildlife Fund, and then each of our regions has some uh, regionally focused uh, environmental partnerships. And then the third, in the economic development space is largely around microenterprise development. And one of our business segments is uh, is focused on small and medium business. So we partner a lot with that business to ensure that the, the products we're granting to those organizations training them are the ones that we'd like to see them using as they grow up to be small and medium businesses. And so that's, that's part of the goal. But that's it's it's very it's a very thoughtful process. I can also chime in on, on our experience at Cisco. Is um, we are also focused on education, and that um, was really came from our former CEO John Mortridge, who um, both his parents were educators, and so he started at Cisco this program, take a router to school, and. Um, and so we'd donate routers to schools, and um, then the school would call us back and say, the router is broken, and you need to send Cisco engineers out to help us fix it. And so um, he, being the visionary he was, um, put together some top Cisco engineers and educators together to create this online curriculum that would teach people to do it themselves and to maintain and build the networks. Um, so that was sort of the whole foundation of this educational focus. Uh, in terms of um, our group, I feel that, um, especially recently, we've just working in that group, we have a lot of say in what's get, what gets put on the agenda for that year. And um, we've had a lot of, I think it was Cam talking about strategy sessions. Um, we actually have one next week. Um, where you know everyone gets together, everyone flies in from all parts of the world, and we just spend a week 
brainstorming future direction of what we're going to do in the next year. But it pretty much is always tied to um, IT education um, because that is what Cisco's, you know, IT is Cisco's area. And, um, and so that's really something we want to support from all our elements of philanthropy is, is very much tied to Cisco's business objectives. And essentially, um, this program that, you know, this educational program that we're running, while um, certainly we're spending a lot of Cisco's money to run it and develop this curriculum, I mean, we hope we're building the future IT workforce and, and um, we hope that um, anywhere that we propagate additional um, IT infrastructure, you know, they'll turn around and some of those purchases will be Cisco purchases. So it is tied very much to the business. I guess ours is tied to a history. Um, when young Levi Strauss himself arrived in San Francisco, his, he left his family. His family moved from Bavaria to New York, he, and they owned a, a, a dry goods store. Or, and, and he came out to open the, the California branch. And while he was living in San Francisco, one of the things that he did, and we have the documentation, it's kind of cool to look at, is he made a $5 uh, gift to a local orphanage in San Francisco, um, which has gone through a lot of uh, changes, but the organization itself still exists today, actually, so, as a social services organization. So when you look at that, here's the family's commitment to the community. And so what we've just done is reinterpreted that and focused in these three themes. Um, that we think are important and that are, are, are worthy of support. And some of the issues in, embedded uh, in these three areas, workers' rights, economic development, and HIV, are just not getting enough attention. So for example, in HIV, we're looking at confronting the stigma and the discrimination around HIV. We're also looking at making clean syringes available to stop the spread of the disease. And most publicly traded companies would not touch the distribution of clean syringes with a 99-foot pole. But Levi's has said, this is something, the issue, HIV, we're very interested in. Um, dirty needles are driving at least 35 to 40% of this pandemic, and we are privately held. We're still owned by the family, the descendants of Levi Strauss, and they think this is the right thing to do. Whether or not it drives business directly, um, we don't know, but what we do know is people come to work at Levi's because they've heard of the things that we do, and they feel like that's the kind of stuff I want to be working toward or for. And that helps us with our recruitment, it helps us with our retention. It's not the reason we do those things, but it's one of those positive benefits. So um, the, the issues are the, the manifestation of, of Priorities that both uh, staff and corporate staff, I mean, the foundation staff and corporate staff together said, with the family support, um, we really want to make a difference here. And hopefully, it would not only help our business, I mean, more importantly, it's going to hopefully change the world. I can also speak to that one. I, think. Um, I guess I, I feel like I have a um, fairly small impact on the overall mission of the foundation. That's something that was said at our founding. Firelight uh, supports and advocates for the needs and rights of children made vulnerable by HIV AIDS in Africa. Um, but I feel like I have a lot of impact on the day-to-day -day of how that is carried out. Um, does that mission mean um, support for organizations dealing with the children of commercial sex workers in Zambia? Or does that mean 
um, support for organizations that are dealing with um, grandmothers in Kenya who've taken in 10 grandchildren after the death of their own children. So I feel like I have a um, sort of a lot of leeway in how that's carried out. Yes. Um, you've all talked extensively about the grant making process, and I was just wondering if you had any information to share about the investing of the endowments that you guys, that you all are, are disseminating um, through your grants, because you know, recently we've heard a lot about Gates, and that there was that LA Times article about socially responsible investing, and, and the isolation between investments and, and grant making process, and I was wondering if you could uh, briefly describe how your individual organizations are approaching um, that issue that has been raised into the public eye. I want to go first. I do a couple things. I'm going to have to jet out exactly in five minutes. I'm going to leave a couple of cards here. Um, but I will take that question because we at Levi's um, do have a reserve. We have an endowment. We have a reserve of, of, of about $75 million in our corporate, um, for our corporate grant making. Saw the article, have been asking ourselves this question, but pretty much came to the same conclusion um, that with our $10 million a year in, in giving our $70 million in investments, it would be, we're not likely to influence uh, with our giving spread across some of the uh, investment funds and companies the behavior of any of them. I also, and I'm going to switch gears a little bit, I also am on the um, board of the Stanford Alumni Association, and the board met here a couple weeks ago, and we had a presentation from the investment manager for the Stanford Management Company, which has about $19 billion under, under management. And I asked him exact same question. 19 billion, 70 million, big difference. You know, there's, some, there's some weight there. But um, also got the same answer. Uh, they just did not feel that their investments spread over so many different categories, funds. And he said, well, if you looked at what we invest in, given the history of Stanford and the size of the fund, at some point, we probably invested a little bit in everything. So then. He did say that they've gone and looked at some of their investments, for example, around Darfur, and pulled out the companies that they could identify were having an association. But it's, it's a good question, and I don't find the answer that satisfying. I'm thinking that you should be able to have some more influence than we do. But when Gates said that they did not feel they had were able to have influence with their, what, $30 billion, um, it kind of made me sit back and think, well, if they're not going to be able to influence the world with their 30 billion, with our 70 million, I guess, you know, we stand much less chance ourselves. We're kind of in between those two figures. Uh, but uh, Packard Foundation has always had kind of a filter, like no smoke, you know, for against, we don't invest in, in tobacco stocks and, and a few other things that we like. But we, we, until recently, didn't ever have a positive program. It was an anti-negative program. We didn't invest in bad things, uh, although it wasn't complete. It's obviously it's almost impossible to, to not invest in somebody that doesn't make mistakes occasionally, even our, our friends over here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's been very few. Uh, but uh, what, so what, what a number of foundations are trying to do now, and in Packard's included, is to see where we can be effective positively. There are two ways. One is with proxies. I mean, you, you can Go and you don't have to have an awful lot of stock, uh, and, and you can uh, put try and put through proxies on uh, you know to try and get the corporation itself 
to, to change its way in some particular area. You can be investing in a you know meatpacking plant, and you, you know they're they're putting their you know they just let all the slop and everything run into a little creek or whatever or whatever they're doing. Uh, and, and you can actually bring up your go and take, spend some time and get a proxy. And usually, what happens is they change their ways because they don't want to. It's bad publicity for them to fight something like that. So they they resist you at first, and then they finally get out and they do it. It takes a lot of time and talent, and you need to have almost a personal person working here. I need to have somebody in the staff really working on that particular issue. The other side is, again, a positive thing where you can invest in positive things, and you can make really program-related investments. And some of those can be things like, uh, years ago, there were a couple of different child care centers that uh, had somewhere where the older people were molesting, and there must be a million child care centers in the United States, and these two in the United States, almost at the same time, got a tremendous amount of publicity, and the insurance rates went up dramatically for all child care centers. So we put some money in and started with a number of other foundations and started a, an insurance company just for child care uh, centers, and it's operating in California now and has about 3,000 clients and is profitable and is providing low, low child care insurance. So. It's, you, you can do some positive investments, and in some of the other areas, we're looking at positive investments and, and uh, other things are working at working at. So it, it, it's, it's a lot of work, and it's hard to do. And if the, your typical investment people, and whether it's Stanford or Gates or even Packard, our typical people say, look, you know, there's nothing we can do. But that's not really right, and I, I agree with you that, you know, it's a... Um, it's, it's the answer you get, but if you, but you just need to have the management say no, we want to do something, and then make uh, make program-related investments. You can't solve all the problems, but at least you ought to work on the problems that in the fields that you're you're specializing. In. And it starts by asking the questions. So keep asking. We've reached the end of our time, and I I want to take the opportunity to thank our wonderful panel. Thank you for coming here and for sharing your experiences. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.